Scott Jeffrey Miller. Hi. Mike, thanks for the platform, man, and the invitation. My pleasure. Honor. Pleasure for sure, yeah. This is legit. This is legit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is, um, um, it's great to have you here. I feel like I'm on an actual news set studio. I've done a fair amount of that, and this is uh, representing. Nicely done. Yeah, well, you know, the funny thing is, is when I uh, have production people, people from television come in here, uh, when I demonstrate it, the system to them live, what they all say is, I can't believe you're able to produce as much as you can without having a team. And uh, and they're very env envious and they immediately pull out their computer and, or their phone and they take notes and they want to know every piece of gear. I'm not but, easily intimidated, but you have like five things going on that you're producing it, directing it and hosting it. And all I have to do is deliver content over here. So yeah, it's going to be fun. Thanks, man. So um, I thought I'd get started. You're a as of like a couple of days ago, right. a uh, Wall Street Journal bestselling author. Congratulations right. Thank on you. that. Thank it's you very much. Amazing. And it's amazing when you do it legitimately. Yes. Which I'm proud that we did, right? Just with uh, individuals choosing to buy the book organically, you can game your way onto a lot of lists, but I'm proud that our standard is high and we don't uh, do that. And I'm, I'm honored to have uh, my co-authors and I have earned that title this week. Yeah. So that's something that is, is really interesting is, first of all, you've done the work. For sure. Yeah. And as an EVP over at Franklin Covey, you've had the good opportunity to, to see uh, what Dr. Covey did by yeah. building his platform and having that as an example, but also working on your own books. So let's go back a little bit. And first of all, let's talk, talk about the two books first, yeah. what they are, who they're for. And then we're going to just dive into some interesting content. And my objective and goal is to ask you questions. Hopefully you haven't been asked before and uh, my goal with every episode of Capability Amplifier is to give the viewer or the listener an opportunity to get a matrix-style cartridge upgrade for their brain and understand how you think so they get an operating system upgrade. Think of it like that. That has never been the goal of one of my interviews, so you're starting out fresh. <laughs> okay. It's good. Awesome. It's Bring good. it on. All right. Bring it on. <laughs> okay, good. So let's begin, first of all, with the, the two books, yeah. because you got two books simultaneously. And, um, Which isn't wise. I don't recommend, right? <laughs> Coming out. Yeah, that's, been there. that's an enormous amount of work, an yeah. enormous amount of work. But when you talk about what the two books are and uh, who they're for, sure. and then we'll get into some of the big ideas that are, I think are going to be super. Yeah, cool. sure. Okay. Well, like you, I host a couple of podcasts. Mm -hmm. One of them is called On Leadership. It's for Franklin Covey. Every week I interview a major celebrity or, or best-selling author, somebody who has a point of view on leadership. And one of the guests was Stephen M. R. Covey, who is Dr. Stephen Covey's oldest son. He wrote a book called The Speed of Trust. This yep. book sold 2 million copies. I have Stephen M.R. on the set, and I say, Stephen, was it hard for you to be the son of Dr. Covey, right? I mean, you know, one of the most influential men of the last 100 years. His book, The Seven Habits, sold 30 million copies. Unbelievable. Was that difficult? And Stephen said it wasn't because our dad was always about affirming our potential. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, our, kind of our celebrity dad and our home dad. And I say, did you ever feel like you needed to write a book as your dad did? He said, I didn't until I did. Meaning he said, I never had anything to say. I was a CEO of a company. I was consulting. But he said, one day I realized I actually had something to say. Took a two-year sabbatical, wrote the book, The Speed of Trust, sold 2 million copies. It was at that interview, Mike, where I said, you know, I've been here for 22 years in the firm at Franklin Covey, raised by Dr. Covey as a pup. And I never thought I had anything to say until that interview. I said, damn it, I've got something to say. 
And that is that leadership is not easy. Leadership is not for everyone. You know, everyone's got a mess going on. And I think vulnerability is a leadership um, competency. So kind of against the traditional culture of the firm, I went out and wrote this book called Management Mess to Leadership Success. Right. And it basically is a story of all of my struggles as an officer in a leadership firm with leadership. But I'm not sure I should have been a leader of people. Wrote this book and it sold 20,000 copies in like 100 days. Not too bad. You know, a great book sells 5,000 copies That's in a year. Very impressive. It's it just, impressive. it hit it strong. The publisher came back and said, we want a whole series. So right now I'm in the process of writing about seven more books in the Mess to Success series. Right now, my next manuscripts do Marketing Mess to Brand Success. I'm writing Job Mess to Career Success, kind of chicken soup for the soul kind of thing going on. So I'm really proud of the book. It's raw, it's relatable. It's not gratuitous, but it's, you know, here's 30 challenges you're going to face, not just as a formal leader, but in your personal life with your mother-in-law, with your spouse, with your kids. And it's done really well. I'm very proud of it. Uh, the next book I co-authored with Franklin Covey's chief people officer okay. and one of our leadership consultants, it's called Everyone Deserves a Great Manager. Mm -hmm. Simon & Schuster published this, just debuted at number three in the Wall Street Journalist. I'm proud it, it, it bumped um, Bob Iger from Disney down a notch. Unbelievable, yeah. <laughs> and I worked at you. Disney because it's kind of a little bit of um, kind of comeuppance, right? Sure. That, I'm kidding. I'm a huge Bob Iger fan and I loved working there. He wrote a great book, by the way. This book debuted yeah, well. Just, it's great. Just for the record, that is something that I, that's in your bio as you started by working at I Disney. did. I worked Amazing. for four yeah. years for the Disney Development Company, which was the real estate arm of Walt mm -hmm. Disney. We can talk about that if you want. But this book is super practical. It's just... Franklin Covey's 40 years in business, millions of interventions, profiles, assessments. Here's six things that leaders need to do to build a great team. So it's very practical. It's an easy read. I like writing shorter books. You know, most books are written enslaved to the publisher. They give you an advance for X number of words, which is why the last half of most business books usually suck and no one ever reads them. So I'd like to write, write books that are about 180 pages or so, 50,000 words, not 60,000 words. I think it's a sweet spot for the busy leader yeah. now. Yeah, I completely agree with that. In fact, what I tell a lot of people is when they write their first book, <clears throat> now this is for self-published because it's a different model, but hit 80 pages or 100 pages. I agree. It's so much easier. And um, one of my friend's mentors, actually the co-host of this podcast, Capability Amplifier, Dan Sullivan, writes four books a year. Hmm. Um, all of them are, are about 80 pages. So yeah. it takes just a little over an hour. He says a flight from Toronto to, to Chicago where they have offices. And each one is set up. It's got graphics and cartoons or comics in it. It's got a uh, what's known as a scorecard built sure, in. Sure. And then <clears throat> the principles... In other words, the values on the scorecard, there are usually eight of them, are also the chapters in the book. And then when you open up that the book- That formula is in each of his books. Yes. So smart. Yeah. And then he's got the uh, um, uh, a audio version of the book and a video version, but it's not him reading the book. Hmm. So it's more of his take, a conversational take. Yeah. And he creates this immersive in environment. But the point of that whole thing, uh, to get back to you, is- um, keep it simple. Short is better. And it is yeah. much better. And you're better yeah. off creating more frequent books than big books. And also, uh, it, 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 
you know, the big idea should just be the big idea. It's true. People have so many options between their podcast and their news and their flip, you know, other pages. People want shorter consumable things. So I think there's a trend towards that. Right on. Yeah. So I, what I wanted to do is talk to you a little bit about, um, let's just spend a little bit of time on, on each book, but I'm, you know, you've been working at a publicly traded company for how many years now? 23, almost 24 years. I know. And as an officer for almost 10. Yeah. 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 That's, um, <laughs> that'll wear you down. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, the funny thing is it's not funny. So I've had plenty of friends who've gone public and I can't think of one who said they liked it after they went public. Definitely not. Right? Right. Yeah. 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 I think it's, you know, it, there's upside obviously. Mm -hmm. Right. And, but there's the scrutiny and the, the, if you will, maybe the enslavement is the wrong term, but just the the responsibility that you feel to your shareholders, to your board and your stockholders, investors and such, it's enormous. And, you know, it, it perpetuates this cycle of what have you done for me lately? It is hard to think really long-term, the boldest of the boards and, and officers really just kind of chuck the short-term focus and say, I'm in it for the long haul, yeah. invest, don't invest, but we're going here. So I hope to see you in 10 years. We'll still be here. Yeah, it's 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 uh, it's tricky and tough. And again, it's it's a different thing. Usually, it's an exit, so you capitalize. And but <clears throat> what I'm curious about is this exit thing you talk of. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm yeah, kidding. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes. Well, that thing. And um, and so my my model that I've gone through has been to build a business and sell it. And everything I do now, I have that in mind, yeah. which is how do I build something and sell it? And I usually have in iteration time. So for example, right now, after selling, it's 10 months ago, the last business, um, I've been iterating and generating ideas and building a platform first. So the idea is build the book, build the speaking, build the podcast, get the framework. Um, I spent about half of my time actually platform creating. Had I met you at 31 as opposed to 51, imagine what I could have done. Man, <laughs> and I've done some things, but imagine if I'd met you earlier. Where were you in my high school? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, where were I when I needed me? Yeah, that, <laughs> exactly. But but that is, it's like build that platform first. But let's talk a little bit about the the management platform because yeah. I'm going to be the first one to say part of the reason that drives me out of my own businesses is my own companies have outgrown me, and I've outgrown them as well because I'm not a good manager. Um, I'm I'm a visionary, yep. fast start implementer. And as soon as an organization needs rules and bureaucracy, I need to go away because I break my own rules and I'm not a good, that's why it's like, I'm not a, it just doesn't work. But here you are, you've been in, in this organization this long, you're really building, uh, your, you know, you're growing in such a way to, to allow yourself to move on or to make yourself kind of obsolete in your own organization by building teams and being a great leader. So yeah. you self-replicate. Yeah. That's your self-replicating operating system. Yeah. So I'd like to just go through this through the lens of, okay, if I'm a one-man show and I need to build this out and um, I'm in a business that's already in growth mode or in a public company because I haven't, I live very briefly in a publicly traded company twice, but not long enough to have learned much mm -hmm. of, of anything. So again, I'm, I'd like to just go through the process and talk about some of the big value points inside here. Now that you've uh, been around the block a few times, yeah. so. I've learned, I've learned a lot. I, I think this following thought applies to everyone. And that is that 
leaders are not supposed to be the smartest person in the room. I don't care if you're the founder, the owner, you're getting ready to sell, you're the CEO of a company. Your, your job is not to be the smartest person in the room because no one wants to work for that person. I've worked for that person. It's can be suffocating. Mm -hmm. Your job, to quote my dear friend, Liz Wiseman, who worked at Oracle for 20 years, left and wrote a book called Multipliers. I think it's the best leadership book written in the last 15 years. And in the, her book, The Multipliers, she talks about your job is not to be the genius, but the genius maker of others. Right. Okay. And that a key role that every leader has, regardless of the size of organization, how soon your exit is, public, private, I don't, not for profit for that matter, it's to really be a talent magnet for other people. It sounds cliche-ish, Mike. Mm -hmm. Something I learned in the last year, and I'm embarrassed to admit that, is that as the chief marketing officer for Franklin Covey, and in my opinion, Franklin Covey is the world's, you know, premier leadership development firm worldwide. Offices in nearly every country work everywhere in the world. One of my misnomers was that I was supposed to have all the answers, that I was supposed to hire people who were smart, but not smarter than me. So I strategically would hire people in who were very talented, but who wouldn't eclipse me. And I'm guessing it was because of my own insecurity, yeah, yeah. perhaps total, my own- Total ego move, right? Totally, yeah. right. And, and my inability to disrupt myself. And then I finally came to this level that that's not my biggest contribution. My biggest contribution is an abundance mentality, my mm -hmm. vulnerability, my ability to hire people in who smoke me intellectually, who know SEO or Google Analytics or marketing automation much better than I do, and be comfortable with that. Be comfortable sitting around a group with people who are discernibly, palpably smarter than me in their areas. And it took me like 25 years to figure that out. Fortunately, it didn't take me 35 years. But I would say as kind of a, a call to every leader, check your ego. You might need what we call an ego enema and, and really say, what is your role? Your role might be as visionary or as evangelist or as mission setter or culture carrier. It might not be you have to touch everything in the company. Let it go. Got it. Got it. And one of the things that I know you've got, um, you built the foundation of the book or what you called um, the 30 leadership challenges. Yeah. And first of all, that's in management. Management mess. So leadership management success. Mess, right. yes. That's right. Um, that's the complication with uh, two doing books. two books <laughs> yeah. at the same time. But <clears throat> so first of all, just talk a little bit about the leadership challenges. Yeah. And then um, tell me a little bit about the, uh, um, uh, what the solutions are. Sure. Mm -hmm. So- when I wrote this book, I got together four or five colleagues at Franklin & Covey. We brainstormed, what do all leaders face? We had about 150 challenges up on the wall, post-it notes. We thought that book will make anybody cry or want to take their life. No one wants to face 150 challenges. So we called it down to about 30. And these 30 challenges kind of congealed into three areas, leading yourself, the first eight, leading others, the next 12, and then finally getting results, the last dozen or so. And so these challenges, like I said, are, are ubiquitous in all parts of our life, demonstrating humility, better listening skills, setting uh, uh, wildly important goals, having high courage conversations, talking straight, aligning actions and outputs and creating systems and, and, and self-improvement. These are not rocket science challenges. You face them in, in discussions with your father-in-law on where is Thanksgiving going to be next year? You discuss them with your brother on where should we rent the, the summer beach cottage to or go on vacation or Disney World. And they're discussions you have with your employees and your peers in the organization. So these challenges, I also created a card deck, you can see. Yeah. Whenever I keynote around the nation, which is uh, actually this week three times, wow. um, I, I pass these cards out because it's a great way for people to get tactical on what these challenges are. Like some okay. other ones are declare your intent. 
Look at card four, declare your intent. I think this is so important. Uh, the moment there is suspicion about a person's motive, everything he does becomes tainted. Number four, turn the, turn mm. your deck over. Those are the back. Oh, okay. Yeah. Back. Okay. Declare your intent. I, I, regardless what, what leadership position you're in, everyone's got a motive. Everyone's got an agenda. Some of them are hidden. Some of them are at the surface, but you know, absent facts, <clears throat> Mike, people make stuff up. So yeah. a great leadership competency, a challenge, if you will, is to just show your cards face up. You know, a, a dear friend of mine, Blaine Lee, who's passed now, said to me something profound. He said, nearly all, if not all conflict comes from mismatched or unfulfilled expectations. Think about your spouse. Yeah. Think about the person who's washing your car, person who's your babysitter, your boss, person you work for, that great leaders clarify expectations, brutally clear. And in some cases, have the person repeat them back to you. So you really know they've, they've got the vision because you've been thinking about it in your head, the whole drive to the office or the last six weeks or on your cruise, whatever you're doing, because it's in your head does not mean it's in the other person's head as well. So leaders sometimes I think short circuit that need to really declare your intent. In fact, mm -hmm. use that phrase in a conversation, Mike, my intent in calling you in today is to help you with your project, not slow it down. But I've got four or five questions I've got to have addressed. And once I'm satisfied with those, man, I'm going to be in your boat rowing with you. It's something I think leaders think they do well, but generally don't perform well on that. Great. Um, so I'm, I'm looking through the cards yeah, right now. Yeah, pick any you like. <clears throat> well, first of all, this is a really smart tool. And Thanks. I was excited when you um, brought these in. So demonstrate humility. Think abundantly. Listen first. Declare your intent. Make and keep commitments. All right, so I'm gonna pick. Uh, ba, 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 make time. All right, this is this is mine Great. that I've done a challenge ten, which is making time for relationships. Yeah, yeah. I will f flat out say, um, for years I didn't do this intentionally, but now I understand that I treated people like things. Yes, and um, as a manager and as a owner of a company, I was always in such a rush because frankly, I felt like I was fighting the, what I called the 30 day monster. It's like I get past it and it's like payrolls due, and it's like how much and I'm measuring cash consumption by the hour. That's how that's how how, um, how fragmented I became and like taking a meeting, for example, an all company meeting would mean taking 20 people, putting them in a right. room and I how knew how that much cost? that cost right. me per course, minute, right? Yeah. And I was thinking about that as burning cash. Yeah. And then I compartmentalized everything, you know, and, and so I wasn't looking at things through the big picture. Now, um, so the contrast side of this, uh, I, I think I, I shifted during the last two years um, with the last business, but that's 30 years of being an entrepreneur, yeah. you know? Um, but now <clears throat> I travel, I spend so much time not focusing on the dollar, but on the depth of the relationship and realizing that we are all one phone call, one connection away from someone feeling comfortable enough to refer us to what could be a breakthrough business relationship. And yeah, it's well not said. that that's why we do it right. for, right. but I'll give you one example. And then I, I want to get yeah. your commentary here, which is this weekend. So I have a client. I really like these people and they, um, we be, my wife and I developed a personal relationship with them. And in the past, I've been kind of cautious about my professional relationships, yeah, sure. my personal ones and who's a client and all that. But they invited us to um, an island to be with them. Mm. 
And we had a great time for four days and we had some profound experiences. And on the way, I like said- Like Richard Branson Island kind um, of <laughs> Keep going. Uh, uh, yes. Keep going. Okay. Uh, so going. I'll, I, I will say on that order, yes. <laughs> okay, it was, got it. It was a profound wow. experience, wow. right? And something I didn't expect. <clears throat> uh, but it did involve, I will say, a private act. Yeah. So then uh, what happened was while we were together, my wife says, I love these people. I really- want to have a relationship with them. So what we did is said, have you ever been to Guadalupe Valley in Mexico? And uh, they're like, no, what is that? Well, it turns out it's wine country in Mexico. There's 300 wineries right across the border from San Diego. It's wow. two hours down, wow. beautiful farm to table. I mean, it's really, really nice. And so um, we, uh, we went down there and took them down, stayed at this B and B we bumped into someone from Argentina who just poured his first, uh, his first bottles. We ended up sipping wine outside in the desert with another couple. You dreamed this or that just actually I mean, happened. This, <laughs> it, it was freaking yes, amazing. Yeah. And it was like 10 in the morning or drink. I mean, it was like, we felt we we're in, in Southern France. Yeah. Right? And, and if you wouldn't know better, you'd feel like you're in Mexico, but or I mean, in, in Italy, rather. Yeah, right. I mean, it, you can't tell that it's Mexico. And we ended up traveling all over. The seafood's amazing. Like I said, farm to table, organic food. It's awesome. Huh. And once again, just that taking the time for a deep, meaningful relationship huh. completely shifted how I operate. And, and I've lived in this old 20-year fear cycle of running out, not having enough, not being enough. And it dictated the depth and meaning of the relationships I was in. So that was a long-winded story. But yeah. I'm curious through your lens, because as a leader, how do you draw the line and and tell me about yeah. relationships through your lens? Yeah, I, you and I are of the same generation. The story you just told, I had not been on a private island and I haven't been down to this beautiful vineyard yet. When you invite me, my wife and I will come and we'll develop a deep, meaningful relationship over farm to table yeah. wine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think there's something happens in your 50s. 40s and 50s, where you start to realize, what's my purpose? What's my mission? Have I uncovered it? Why am I here? Mm -hmm. Right? What's my contribution? I think it, I do think it's in your 40s and 50s. Hopefully, not your 70s and 80s. But here's what I learned from Dr. Covey. I, I mentioned him because I think he's one of the real deals. Uh, passed seven years ago from the result of a bicycle accident and a brain injury. Wear your helmet. I remember the day on a bike, happened. it was so sad. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Dr. Covey said many wise things, probably one of the most yep. quoted men of our time. He said mm -hmm. something that will change my course of relationships. And that is with people, slow is fast and fast is slow. Yeah. And I learned that when I first joined the firm as a 23-year-old or 25-year-old, but it didn't really hit me in my 20s. Mm -hmm. I thought that's cliche-ish. But what I started to realize from Dr. Covey is that there's two mindsets. There's an efficient mindset and then, Mike, there's an effective mindset, and they're different. His book was not titled The Seven Habits of Highly Efficient People. It was very deliberately The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And I fall square into the efficiency mindset. As you can tell, I have a lot of energy like you. I'm very productive. I, I check off lists. I get most things done before 7 a.m. that many people get done before noon. On a Saturday, I'm at Home Depot or Lowe's before the employees are there, backing up my SUV, loading in the flowers. They're planted by 7.30, car washed by 8, ready for tennis by, you know, by 9. Mm -hmm. And that's fine on certain things. Plant marigolds as fast as you want to. 
an efficiency mindset can work with some meetings, processes, systems, software, that kind of stuff. But when it comes to what matters in life, which is relationships, which is the backbone of every organization, every family, everyone's legacy, you have to slow down. With people, slow is fast and fast is slow. And as I turned 50, I started to realize, Mike, you know what? I'm going too fast. And I've got to better compartmentalize when to be efficient and when to be effective. I've mentioned you, I have three sons, five, seven, and nine. Whoa. And I take my sons, I know, thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you. Private school bill, private, <laughs> private school, school bill. Yeah. It's true. <laughs> I think my five-year-old's uh, preschool tuition was more than my college tuition when I went to school, but enough on that. Yeah. Uh, it's a good investment, I think. What I found myself doing, Mike, was taking my boys to ice cream. It was an ice cream parlor four blocks away and trying to do it as fast as I could. Checking my phone, how many books of my books sold that week and how many likes I had on LinkedIn. And fortunately, I had an intervention with myself realizing, no, 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 this shouldn't take as short as possible. This should take as long as possible. Slow down, enjoy it. Laugh when the ice cream falls off the cone. Pick it up, put it in the garbage, go pay a dollar and 20 cents for another scoop of ice cream or free, most likely. Yeah. And don't wig out. And I, I wish I would have known some of these things earlier in life. If you're learning this stuff now with a, you know, with kids as young as you, well, you're, you're doing fine. You're hopefully, doing fine, Dr. Yeah. Covey says something so wise. Again, he he wrote in his book The Seven Habits. He talked about this famous story called Green and Clean. And people who are Seven Habits devotees know this story, where Dr. Covey took his oldest son, Stephen M. R. Covey, and taught him some discipline on keeping the yard green and clean. Son, I want it green and I want it clean. Pick up all the garbage, keep the grass mowed and raked. And finally, Dr. Covey found himself just like harping on his son every night. And he finally asked himself, am I raising grass or am I raising boys? And I have to remember that, right? Am I raising, am I, am, I'm raising boys. That's my legacy, right? It's dad. So with relationships in your organization, that's what matters. This adage that people are a company's most valuable asset, that's bunk. That's nice. Some HR person said that. What's most important in companies are the relationships between each other. Mike can be genius. Scott can be creative. But if we can't get along, solve our interpersonal disputes, forgive each other, pre-forgive each other, mm -hmm. then the company doesn't need us. Move on somewhere else because I only need you the two you can get together and figure it out, work it out, and make magic. Right on. It's good. It's good. So uh, next question I have for you. I was just looking through the cards. Yeah. I want to know what Check Your Paradigms is all yeah. about. Tell me about that. Yeah. yeah. Challenge 11. Okay. Uh, Dr. Covey, again, popularized the word kind of paradigms. It pre-exists him, but it's this idea that as youth, you know, we are deeply enculturated to believe certain things. I was raised in central Florida in the 80s, Orlando, by two upper middle class parents. I was raised to believe, believe it or not, that all Catholic priests, doctors, and police officers always tell the truth and are always right. It was kind of a value of my generation and of where we lived. It's absurd. Do all Catholic priests always tell the truth? Apparently not. Apparently not. And I'm a Catholic <laughs> in good standing, right? But I mean, apparently not. Do all police officers do the right thing? Definitely not. Right. Imagine if I had to put that to the test. Fortunately, I didn't. I, I had a good experience with all three of those profiles. But my mm -hmm. parents, one of the many warped paradigms that they enculturated, my brother and I, and everybody has them from birth. Our parents, our ministers, our, our principals, our teachers, our leaders enculturate into us a belief system, kind of a metaphorical eyeglasses that you see the lens mm -hmm. through. So as leaders, you have to really check your paradigms. 
Do you see the whole person? Do you know their story? Do you know their fears? Have you taken the time to really understand? Do you have an accurate view of them, of yourself, of your place in the market, of your competition, of the industry, whatever it is? I think great leaders that move from mess to success are always willing to challenge their paradigm of um, themselves. No one is as handsome or their breath smells as good as they think or as smart or creative or as patient or as gracious. I don't know about you, but I always get the, um, I hate driving home from dinner parties with my wife. It's 1030. We've had a great conversation. She says, you had to go there. You promised me you would not bring up Trump or whatever it is, right? I think I'm funny and witty. She's like, you couldn't feel the mood at the table, Scott. You know, as I think, I think we have to just check the perceptions of ourself that are rarely accurate or as great I've as we think they are. I've never had that conversation ever with my <laughs> I can my guarantee wife. you have. <laughs> have you not really? <laughs> no, no. She's Wow. She no, we've many times I was definitely I activated every humiliation response she could Okay, yeah, good. Totally. Good, good. She's hypersensitive <laughs> and I genuinely believe that I'm in deep rapport <laughs> and do. it isn't until afterwards <laughs> that someone will say you know, um, blah, blah, blah. What you said there was, I'm like, what? Everyone was laughing, having right. a good time. They're yeah. like, eh, there's yeah. a difference between laughing with and laughing at. I think and, we're yeah. more related than maybe we think we are. Yeah. yeah. Well, we grew up, we grew up in the Midwest. We you did. Know, there, we did. So, uh, you did at least. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So uh, next one uh, that I just bumped into is protecting your team against urgencies. Yes. That's yes. number 19. Yeah. <laughs> you should be, you should have a podcast. That's right. You have a great podcast voice. Protect your team from urgencies. This is all about, Leaders need to understand the difference between what is important and what is urgent. And there's a difference. And I think a lot of leaders, a lot of entrepreneurs, they've gotten where they are because they're either they're workaholics, or they have such a great idea, or they have contagious energy, and they're working nonstop, and they build sometimes an urgent culture. And that's fine. Sometimes having a bias to action is what differentiates you from your lazy competition. But the difference comes in that people can't, thrive in a nonstop urgent culture for long. They can do it in, 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 in spurts. They can do it in bits, but they need a break. And leaders need to know when are you creating an urgency addicted culture? Because most people that like urgency like to save the day, like to rush in and feel that dopamine squirt in your brain and get that satisfaction of saving the day. The big challenge is oftentimes the leaders are the problem is they have a brand new idea and then another idea and another idea. Now your people have 15 ideas and you've not taken the time to differentiate which is the most important genius idea, right? Yep. Right. Great at the expense of good. So I think leaders should ask themselves too, when is having this urgency proclivity, a bias towards action good? And when is it drowning your people? I love a good crisis and I've been known to cook one up if one doesn't exist, because I want to feel validated. Because in most organizations, who you give the $100 Visa gift card to is the person who put their product in their trunk and drove seven hours through the night to the client, not the person who checked off all the systems and got it right to prevent the urgency. Be careful what you reward. Got it. Got it. Good. Good stuff. So I want to get a little more um, tactical for a moment. Not that we haven't been tactical here the whole time, because this has been... Um, really, really good stuff. Uh, but I'm curious about some more stories, um, that you're experiencing and some distinction. So Franklin Covey has been, how long has it been? Publicly? 40 years, 40 it, years as a company. Yeah. But it's been publicly traded about, about 35 years. Yes. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah. I had 
no idea. The Franklin Quest Company okay. merged with the Covey Leadership Center oh, 25 years that's ago. That's right. But okay. Franklin Quest was public prior to that. That's right. Now I got it. Now I remember the reason, all, all yeah. of it. So this is, yes. So, but you've always operated inside a public company, at least with them and Disney too. Well, actually, yeah, pretty much so. Yeah. I joined the Covey Leadership Center for about five days prior to them being acquired or merged with Franklin Covey. So my entire 30-year portfolio has been working in public companies. Wow. Yeah. So I'm curious, the distinction between the two, because if you've been operating public, and a lot of clients, obviously, Franklin Covey, are not going to be publicly They're traded not, companies. They're not, right, right. So what are the key distinctions you see from a management leadership perspective through your lens yeah. right now? Because yeah. we live in a very interesting evolving time yeah so i, I, I think one i think transparency as a leader because in a public company especially with what's happening with um, sarbanes oxley the mood the me too movement i mean public companies are increasingly the most transparent you know entities around as a public officer we're very deliberate around what we can and can't say but for the most part unless you're disclosing you know proprietary information, our job is to make sure everybody understands our, our revenue, our profit, our cost of goods, our margin, how their job is connected. I think in mm -hmm. private organizations, because it may not be necessary or appropriate to share that level of information, yep. owners and leaders tend to hold back. Okay, They tend to be much more guarded with information because mm -hmm. it perhaps is their own business. And yep. But the, the, the problem with that, the more guarded you are, the less people understand the why behind the what. Yep. So I, I would really advise leaders in private companies to be very deliberate about, are you explaining to everyone how their job, how what their project they're working on connects to the goals of the organization, the profitability, why it's important to them? You know, this is a cliche, but this idea of why behind the what is probably a key lever of engagement when people really understand what they're working on. Here's a good example. When I was working in the education division at Franklin Covey, uh, one of my mentors, Chuck, had created a um, an alliance with the USOC, the Olympic Committee. Mm. And so we'd created some content based on some Olympic athletes who were selling it. And Chuck had spent a year on this project. We learned about it for the first time when he walked into the office with a USOC official and said, here are these products, we want you to sell them. And I can remember being a bit of a cantankerous jerk, asking all these why questions. I had no idea. Why are we doing this? What is the purpose? How did this, what was the um, initiation behind this? What's the vision for this? And I had enough to sell. I didn't need one more thing to drown my clients in. And so I think Chuck, who was a dear friend of mine and a very strong mentor and a transition figure in my life, had Chuck backed it up a little bit and had us involved in the process, that, 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 that adage, no involvement, no commitment. Yeah. Had we been more involved at an appropriate level, I think we would have sold the pants off that product. That product died and failed within a couple of months. Mm. But none of the sales team, at the end of the day, people who were responsible for putting in front of clients were really passionate about it or understood the why behind the what. And so I think as leaders, you, you have your levels of transparency. Check them. And are you hoarding information that if you were to divulge some could really get the, the not just the minds, but the hearts of your people connected to the, the purpose? Okay. Um, next up, I... I uh was curious too about breaking points that you see in organizations. And, and when I say that, it's, it's like when uh, management really breaks down um, and what your advice yeah. is, yeah. Um, where do you see the biggest breaking points and at what point? So scaling for me, I, mm. I went through many times when I broke, my infrastructure broke, 
the company outgrew the people I had working and yeah. I didn't have the courage, for example, and as to when to let people go or when to hire new. Yeah. But um, I'm curious what your perspective yeah. is I th on I that. think two points. I mm -hmm. think generally leaders are pretty poor at having high courage conversations. You know, you talk to your spouse about it, you talk to your business partner, advisor, but sitting down with someone and having a high courage conversation like this, Mike, I've called you into my office today because I can see you having a great career here in my organization. I've got your back and you're exhibiting some behaviors around not collaborating with IT and supply chain that if those behaviors keep up, we're going to have a problem so big that it might result in me having to actually terminate you from the company. I'd like to discuss three of those behaviors, ask you, have you seen them in yourself mm -hmm. and talk about how you and I can work together to get you back on the right path. I mean, that is a high courage conversation that too many leaders cannot have, either because they go too far and just eviscerate the person because they haven't role played it or practice it, or they're cowardly inside and they think they're going to hurt the person's feelings or they're not naturally good at this and they end up beating around the bush and obfuscating. But a balance of courage and consideration, this can be a turning point in your company. People should know where they stand with the boss at any given time, not every minute. And perhaps once a week, sit down and have a high courage meeting. These four things you are killing it on. Please keep that up. These things you're doing are really frustrating me and they're hurting your brand. I want you to fix these and I want to see immediate improvement. Most people will find that to be a transition point in their career and they will thank you later on. It'll be awkward. They won't like you for two days. You're not there to be liked. You're there to be respected and to build a business. Have high courage conversations. Second, I think, is the um, ego of leaders. I think there is a, a pomposity, an arrogance, a hubris that develops. Uh, that's right, de demonstrate humility in leaders. I think too often leaders see humility as a weakness. It's the shy, retiring leader that doesn't have the courage. No, actually, leadership is a strength. Leadership comes from confidence. Confident leaders are humble leaders. They're the kind of person that can get up at the quarterly team meeting and say, you know what? I think the strategy that I cooked up and I announced at our meeting isn't working and I'm taking responsibility. We all have some culpability, but I'm not sure it is the best idea to go forward with. And I'm here to acknowledge that and discuss it today. You know, I interviewed Clayton Christensen, who is the famed author and, 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 and innovations professor at Harvard and his co-author, Karen Dillon. She's the former editor of the Harvard Business Review. Mm -hmm. They co-wrote a book called How Will You Measure Your Life? It's a genius book about taking business principles and applying them in your personal life. In this book, they reference a study that said that about 93% of successful organizations, success as defined by hitting some economic measure, mm -hmm. end up achieving success with what they call an emergent strategy versus the deliberate strategy. It was a different strategy halfway through. The strategy that, that, that they won with was totally different than the one that they started with. And I think it takes that humble, nimble leader, the votable leader to say, you know what? We're going to take a new direction. Who's got a better idea? It doesn't mean you solicit a democracy. It doesn't mean you agree with the last person you met with. No one wants to work for the person that, you know, stands for nothing and falls for everything. Mm -hmm. But do you have that emotional maturity, the intellectual agility and the humility to say, you know what? This isn't working and I cooked it up. Where should we go? Got it. Got I think it. it's a breaking point. That's great. Um, so as, as you were going through this, I had a little aha moment about your book. Great story, by the way. Thanks. And, uh, as you were describing 
the process and where things break down, I was looking through the cards here. And what I ended up doing is pulling out the cards that I thought were most relevant. And I just realized that one of the ways you can use the book and these cards is anytime you've got a challenge, just kind of flip through them really quickly and see which apply to the challenge I have. So again, as I listen to you, I grab demonstrate humility, balance, courage. How how are you at that? Are you you humble? Um, I suck at it. Yeah. So interestingly, um, I do have a big ego, but most people I know who've worked with me or for me for a long time know I'm the first one to say I'm wrong. Um, And I really do my best to make people around me a star. Now, my ego gets in the way because I usually know the answer to a lot of things. I'm good at solving a lot of problems. Um, And I get frustrated with unresourceful people. Um, but I, I know I've heard that on a regular basis. So, right. and, and I am very coachable. I will yeah. always listen to a coach, even if it's from someone who works for me, they'll, yeah. I make it okay for them to open yeah. up and tell them what they you really make it think. safe to tell the truth. That's one yeah. of the challenges. Yeah. yeah. Keep going. Thank you. So, um, humility, then balance, courage, and consideration. You did talk about that. Make it safe to tell the truth for sure. And then I grab, make high value decisions, which I know that anytime I'm stuck in a loop and I'm not productive and I'm not getting stuff done, it's because I'm not making enough high value decisions, yeah. right? Yeah. You get stuck in those. You know, on that mic, yeah. I think that's so important because the choice that's coming at us right now is unprecedented. And next week it'll be bigger, right? We're not gonna have less choices next month, next year. Totally. As a leader, entrepreneur, founder, of any, any kind of leadership position, I, I recommend to people, ask yourself that question every hour in the hour. Like every day I wake up and I make sure that I am making the highest value decisions of my time, how that return can help Franklin Covey. They're my employer. And I I found myself asking it every hour on the hour. Is this podcast, is this webinar, is flying to San Diego and spending time with Mike the highest use of my time in this half day? I need to be in Atlanta tomorrow, right? I have a lot of writing to do. I could have gone in the day early. I have clients down there. And so with leaders, if you'll just take that kind of rudimentary exercise, make a plan. Every hour in the hour for one or two days, ask yourself, is this or this, this or this, you'll build a discipline and realize maybe you were lured into some things. Maybe you did some things that you said you would, but you really shouldn't back out of them. You'll build a cadence and a muscle that will increase your return. I love it. Very good. Well, the last one I had here was challenge 29 is lead through change. Um, again, it's, we always, it's so easy to sit around and bitch. And, and that creates a bad precedent. And I know even my closest, highest level friends who are super smart, we've got 15 year relationships. I catch them or me getting into old bitches yeah. versus um, just creating um, one thing that, that Dan Sullivan does uh, at the very beginning of every meeting and also at the very beginning of every meal. So before a strategic coach, we meet for dinner the night before usually. And it's the exercise is called positive focus. So what he has is every single person go around Robin and talk about something amazing that has happened either today or this week yeah. that you're super proud of. Yeah. And we do that with our family dinner, the yeah. three of us now. We so do it we, too. We call okay. it best of the week. Oh, great. It's a great exercise. What was your best of the week? And that that is probably one of the most huh. powerful disciplines yeah. is always starting and then also ending every dinner, every meeting with, with what's your biggest uh, positive takeaway or yeah. gift that you received? It's good conditioning, it's right? To keep, keep, yeah. keep your mind, you know, who's good at that is John Gordon. 
Oh, yeah. I interviewed uh, the energy bus. He's written, guy's written 17 books, He's nine bestsellers. And he will tell you, he was a miserable person, super negative. And his wife just said, I love you, but I can't live this way. And he just really kind of, ch he chose to turn his mindset around, says easy, right? Does hard. Yeah. But the power of positive thinking and gratitude, no, nothing is more impactful on your mindset than having a, a deeply um, deep sense of gratitude for even the small things you have in life, right? It's, it's absolutely yeah. true. Absolutely true. So um, I think what I wanted to do to, to wrap this up, I know, that, first of all, I've got links to the books in Thank the you. show notes for sure. And also I'm going to put up uh, a link right now to learn more about you, which is at managementmess.com. Great. Great. And I've got that up on the screen right now for folks. Otherwise you can visit the website, but do you have a, an ask you'd like um, from our audience here? Cause I always like to ask that if you had a big yeah, ask. Yeah, I do have an ask. Okay. I, I, and the ask is not something for me, something for them. It's deliberately choose to be a leader or don't. There's no shame in being a great individual producer. In fact, 90% of the population is very pleased just kind of mm. bringing their all, their creativity, their work ethic, and getting in and getting out. Too often, people are lured into leadership. They think they want to earn more money or it's the career ladder. Not everyone should be a leader of people. I told you, I'm not sure I should have been a leader of people. It, it can be unrewarding and, and it can be demoralizing and, and, yeah. and not very um, uh, uh, inspiring sometimes. And there's also lots of great benefit of being a leader, but, but deliberately choose to be a leader and go in eyes wide open. Be very clear. The skills that make you a great individual producer oftentimes are the opposite skills. You need to be a leader of people because what happens is too many people get into leadership and realize, I hate this. And then they flame out or they leave their jobs. And now you've lost as an organization, your leadership pipeline and your best producer. So my ask to everybody is don't be lured into a leadership role, be led in. And it's okay. No shame saying, I want to go become the best individual producer as a digital designer or a dental hygienist or whatever it is and get in and get out. All right. Beautiful. All right. Well, um, what I have to say to you is thank you. This is a lot of fun. First of all, it's been great you, getting Mike. to know you. And uh, one of the funny things that happened here, just to be totally transparent with our audience, is you reached out to me on LinkedIn. I did. And it was kind of a cold intro, even though it was totally cold. somehow <laughs> I think we've crossed paths. Um, but I, I know I had with um, the organization. But yeah. And, and you and I had not personally. Yeah. yeah. So but that's something I've learned. People can't help you if you don't ask. And so I'm pretty bold and I've got lots of no's, but I've had more yeses than no's. And so it's something I would say to people, don't show any fear. I mean, you and I have talked off camera now for an hour. We have so many different things we could help each other with just, totally. you know, um, uh, because we're abundant people, because yeah. we're generous people and we're grateful for people who've helped us too. So, right on. Right yeah. On. Yeah. So I think that's my big takeaway is what a great moment because it wasn't long ago. You asked and my initial reaction is, ugh. Right. Another author who <laughs> wants to schlep his books on my podcast, Management Leadership Beyond. Yeah, does the world need one more management book? Yeah, right. They but, do, one more. Yeah, well, the good news is, first of all, your content's awesome. Uh, you're awesome, and I'm looking forward to doing more. And I'll tell you what, let's talk about this Guadalupe Valley trip. <laughs> my wife is delightful. Okay. Yeah, she'll make up for me. Oh, good. Mike, good. thank you, man. All right. Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, it's been a great pleasure. Thanks. Thank you.